Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 1, scripture that was read for us, Ephesians chapter 1. Have you had that slightly embarrassing experience of finding out that something you dreaded or you thought was terrible, was awful, actually turned out to be wonderful? One word, sushi. <laughs> it sounded terrible. The, the, the description of it made it sound even worse. And we had a staff birthday, and the person said, I want to go for sushi. And being a good senior pastor, I'm like, all right, sushi it is. And then glory hit my tongue. <laughs> sushi, it's amazing. It is wonderful. Or maybe there was a particular person. You had seen this person, maybe from a distance. You considered them to be less than someone you would ever want to meet. In fact, you hadn't even talked to them, but they just they threw this vibe of being this terrible person. And then you got stuck with them at, on a school project or on something at work or on a host team. <laughs> And then you start talking to them and you do things with them and you find out this person is wonderful. 
Or maybe for you, it was God and his word. And you thought, I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want anything to do with that. It looks to me to be horrible. It looks to me to be oppressive and offensive. But then you actually read his word and prayed and thought and God himself became wonderful in your eyes. This experience happens often with things that the Bible teaches. There can be words or phrases, teachings of the Bible that we might find at first blush to be boring or illogical or downright offensive. And then when we read and pray and think, they become to our eyes wonderful. That was certainly my experience with Ephesians chapter 1. What was once offensive, hard, technical in my eyes became wonderful, as I hope and pray it will for you today and in the weeks ahead. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 in the original is one sentence, one very long sentence. And in this sentence, there is a reflection on the part of the Apostle Paul on what God has done to save us. He, he frames it in a Trinitarian kind of way. He begins with God the Father, and then he reflects on God the Son's role in our salvation, and then God the Holy Spirit. You can spot that by the repeated phrase, maybe you've seen this before, the end of verse 6, the end of verse 12, and the end of verse 14, there's a phrase something like to the praise of his grace or to the praise of his glorious grace. That seems to be closing off each of those three sections. And each of those sections is primarily thinking about each person of the Trinity and their role in our salvation. And yet we know that God is one. There are not three gods. There is one God who exists in three persons. And while there are different emphases on each person, we would be incorrect to then think of our salvation as something in which each member of the Trinity is operating independently of the other. That's part of the reason you see Jesus in every section. Our series is on Jesus Christ, and so we're exploring what Jesus has done in order to save us. And in these actions of God, as they relate to us, everything is being channeled to us through Christ, in Christ. That's why you see it all through the passage. Look at verse 3. He blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ. Verse 5, we're predestined through Christ. Everything the Father does is in Christ. And then Christ, all that Christ grants us is, is ours through this positional relationship, identification with himself. Verse 7, we're redeemed by Christ in Christ. Verse 11, we receive our inheritance in Christ. Uh, then we move to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us, verse 13, in Christ, the moment we believed in Christ. And so while this passage is all about the triune God, as far as the things he does in our salvation, it is all mediated to us through Christ. What the Father gives us 
is through Christ. What the Holy Spirit does to us is in Christ. And all that we receive having been saved by Christ. So it's in this sentence that, uh, in this way I'm saying this sentence, all of it refers to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. You know what else I think is interesting about this sentence is that it was written to Christians just like you. It was written to very normal Christians. And rather than be scared by long sentences with big words, every Christian should understand this. Every Christian can understand this. All of it. This sentence was not written for theology nerds or seminary students. It was written for stay-at-home moms and doctors and construction workers and students and children, bakers, bankers, balance sheet makers. The whole thing is written for just normal Christians. In fact, when you get to the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, a separate letter but written around the same time, and, and if you read the two of them, you'll find that there's lots and lots of overlap. When you get to the end of the letter of Colossians, Paul says, this is Colossians 4.16, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter that I sent to Laodicea. Now, we're not positive, but it's likely that the letter to Laodicea is this letter we call Ephesians. We'll go into why, but it's just kind of assumed. Maybe so, maybe not. But this is what the churches were to do. You get a letter from the apostle, you make copies, and you send all the other churches in your area. That's why they're called circular letters. They were to be circulated among all the churches. So Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I'm belaboring this a bit because of something that happened to me many, many years ago. I was pastoring a different church, a different time, different universe. No, same universe. Uh, But in that church, I was preaching from Ephesians chapter 1, and a dear sister came up to me, and she insisted I stop. She said, she was convinced that Ephesians chapter 1 was a church splitter. And a lot of her concern boiled down to the vocabulary that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1. She said to me, when you use phrases like, he chose us, he predestined us, he works all things after the counsel of his own will, when you use those kind of phrases, you're stirring the pot, you're creating division. Her view was that it was better to adopt the kind of U.S. military view, don't ask, don't tell. Uh, if, you, if you believe these things, that's fine, but don't tell anybody. Good Christians don't put political signs on their lawns, and they don't tell people what they think about election and predestination. <laughs> I just wonder what thoughts or what feelings come into your head when you hear the word election, when you hear about God choosing, when you hear about God's sovereignty. Do those words make you cringe, stiffen up, internally panic? Do they make you feel dumb? Do you know what word came into the Apostle Paul's mind when he thought about these these words? Blessed. That's the first word of the sentence. Blessed, verse 3. 
And that takes us to point one. God is blessed forever. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That word blessed is getting used three times in two different ways. The, the word bless, eulogia, like eulogy in our English, uh, to speak a good word. That's just its most basic meaning. A good word that is spoken about someone. And that's how Paul is using it at the start of the sentence. In fact, the B you don't even need there. It's just blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul uses the word blessed two more times in this verse in its more nuanced or expanded meaning. He uses it first as a verb. He's blessed us. And then as a noun, every spiritual blessing. And so when Paul switches from calling God blessed to referring to us as being blessed, He's, he's meaning two slightly different things. When he starts with the cognate there, just blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he means God is worthy of commendation. That is why the Bible only uses the word blessed that way to refer to God, never to man. God is the only one who in and of himself is blessed who is worthy to be praised and adored. In his essential nature, God is the blessed one. But our God, who in and of himself is blessed, in turn blesses his people. And here the word takes on that slightly different meaning because we can't add anything to God. When we say blessed be God, we're not, we're not adding anything to God. God is perfect in and of himself. However, when God blesses us, he is adding to us. He's providing benefits for us. And that's how the word is used. He's providing benefits for us. This seems to be the mantra of every spiritually suspicious NBA player. I'm so blessed, man. I'm so blessed. <laughs> I say spiritually suspicious because I think people are just saying that because they want to keep winning games and millions. <laughs> if you don't give a hat tip to God, he might take it away to you. That's not Christian religion. The difference between that athlete and you rests on the content of the blessing. What benefits, what blessings, what benefits have been provided to you? And for the Christian, those benefits are staggering. God the Father has blessed us Christians with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I want to pause there for a second because I inserted a word if you're reading your text carefully. I said, God the Father has blessed us Christians. And I said that because of point number two. Christians are blessed by God forever. Look with me for a moment to the very beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to who? To saints, holy ones, Christians who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This letter is not addressed to all the citizens of Ephesus. It is not addressed to Paul's friends in Ephesus. This letter is addressed to saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus, real Christians. 
Now, who real Christians are is going to grow increasingly clear as the apostle writes the letter. So we'll, we'll cheat. We'll jump ahead to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Look at what he says there, verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you, you Christians, right, you Christians were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, including himself, Apostle Paul, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, the lusts of our desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, you lived under the wrath of God. That's your state the moment you were born. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. This spiritual transition from death to life, from being dead to being alive, all by God's grace, that results in you living differently. Now you're alive. Ephesians chapter 5, jump ahead there for a moment to verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children, just like kids imitate their parents. Imitate your heavenly father. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You want to know how to live, Christian? It boils down to that. Copy God. Be like him. Love like he loved you. Old behaviors, things like lying, sexual immorality, stealing. Paul talks about all those. He says those things are rejected. And the real Christian begins to live with a growing holiness that is an overflow of God's love for her and her love for God. That's who Paul is talking about in chapter 1, verse 3. These spiritual blessings that he's going to unpack for us, they're not for the whole world. They're not for really nice people who try hard to help other people. They're not for anybody who happens to attend church here and there uh, or just my parents went to church, so I'm good. These blessings, the ones that cause Paul to start with the words, blessed God, blessed be God, praise God. The, the, these blessings are reserved for people who have been born again. Have you been born again? Have you rejected your sins and your sinfulness called out to Jesus, asking him to save you and, and to rescue you, to change you? Have you experienced the transition from being dead to being made alive? Maybe you haven't heard about these things before. 
Or you thought that being a nice enough person would get you to heaven. Or you thought that riding in the back of your, the minivan of your parents' spirituality would get you to glory. I want to be crystal clear here. You are under the wrath of God if you're not under the blood of Christ. You simply have to become someone who is what he describes here over and over again as being in Christ. And to be in Christ means to be relationally unified with him by having repented from your sins and trusted entirely on him to save you from the punishment that you deserve for those sins. And if you've not done that yet, you can do it today. There are no special words, no special places, no special posture needed. I was saved on my knees in California, of all places. And you could get saved on your toes in Toronto. All that matters is that you, the real you, call out to God in repentance and faith. God saved me when I was 15 years old. Imagine that. And my first breath as a new baby Christian was to call out to him in repentance and faith. Praise God. And whether you're 15 or 51, God can save you. And once he does, the blessed God blesses you with, are you ready for this, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every one of them. All of them at the moment of your conversion are instantly yours. That takes me to number three. Christians are blessed by God forever with all the blessings. You go from death to life. You go from abject spiritual poverty to inconceivable spiritual wealth. When you become a Christian, you become fabulously wealthy with a treasure that never underperforms, underwhelms, nor underachieves. The things Paul is about to start describing here, things like election, predestination, he views as the eternal, priceless, and mind-blowing gifts of God. They are blessings, and you get all the blessings, not just some of the blessings, which would be pretty great, not just most of the blessings, which would be even more awesome, but you get every single one of them, all of them, with every spiritual blessing. The word is all, pasa, all the spiritual blessings in Christ. They're called spiritual blessings because they are things that belong to and are actuated by the Holy Spirit. Some preachers get on TV and suggest that God wants to make you rich. They are right. God wants you to be fabulously wealthy, and you need to have faith in this. All you need to do is believe, and it's yours. And I am not for one millisecond talking about the wealth of this world. Sick Lazarus covered in sores, begged crumbs from the rich man's table, and yet Lazarus was fabulously wealthy because all the spiritual blessings were his in Christ. 
all the spiritual blessings, every single one of them are yours as well if you're in Christ. There ain't no need for a second blessing when you get everything in the first. These are heavenly riches we're speaking about, spiritual blessings that are in the heavens or in the heavenly realm. Just because they're unseen does not make them unreal. You can't see God but that doesn't make him unreal, and thus we should have no problem believing that all this fantastic spiritual wealth is ours in Christ. You can't see Jesus, that doesn't make him unreal, and that's good because all of these blessings, all of these Holy Spirit delivered, invisible, heavenly benefits are ours only insofar as we are united by faith to Christ. In fact, in the original sentence, Paul puts that little phrase, in Christ, at the end. So it would read like this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I think he put it there to kind of serve as a, just a catch-all exclamation mark, brothers, sisters, it's all in Christ. If you're in Christ, All the spiritual blessings are yours. You will not believe God is the blessed one unless you are in Christ. And you will not receive any of the Spirit's blessings unless you are in Christ. But if you are in Christ, then you can start meditating on this first gift under the tree. This is number four on my outline, sermon outline. Christians are blessed forever by God's gracious choice. Verse four starts with that little adverb, even as sometimes translated just as. It serves like a little foundation upon which everything else is going to flow. Paul's signaling to us, the reader, I'm going to tell you how God has blessed his children in Christ. And the first great blessing he gives is this. He chose you. You don't believe me? Just just here, read it. (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us. In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We live in a democracy. (laughs) Oh, amen. Our society virtually deifies independence. Self-rule. Choice. So there is a way in which these three words falling on modern Canadians' ears can sound very, very offensive. God chose you. But that's precisely what this text says. Did you see those words? Even as he chose us. The word choose means to choose, to select, to choose, to pick out of a group for oneself. And the subject that is doing the choosing is the father and the object of his choice, each individual Christian. He, God the Father, chose us, the saints, in Christ. Jesus himself used this language. 
Mark chapter 13, you might want to turn there for a moment. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 20, in what is called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's teaching his 12 disciples. They want to know how everything's going to end. <laughs> Everybody wants to know the end. And Jesus tells them a little bit, but mostly he warns them, just be faithful, guys. <laughs> that's, a, that's the Paul Martin Cole's notes of Mark 13. Uh, Mark 13, verse 20 Jesus speaking, he says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, these days of great persecution on his people, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, this is the same word, just used, translated differently, you could translate it, the chosen ones. But for the sake of the chosen ones whom he chose, same word, so Jesus is speaking, talking about the Father. He says, but for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, whom God the Father chose, he shortened the days, the days of persecution. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. It's not possible, though, <laughs> because Jesus is going to intervene. Three times, though, he uses our word. In this context, Jesus is very clear. He's referring to Christians when he talks about the elect, the chosen ones. The, these are the people whom God has saved. And God the Father was the one who did the choosing. Jesus says, for the sake of the elect, whom he, the Father, chose. That's all over your Bible. Titus chapter 1. You can just listen to these. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. It wasn't just a Paul thing. How about Peter? 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect and exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and it goes on. How about Peter again? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you, speaking to Christians, are a chosen elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The most sort of concentrated and uh, extensive argument for God's electing grace is found in Romans chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I would commend it to you. But in the midst of that chapter, when he's talking about uh, the electing or the, the choosing work of God, Paul uses the example of twins, a very excellent example, twins. This is Romans 9 verse 10. Not only so. But also when Rebecca, yeah, that Rebecca, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul is making a point here with the twins and saying, look, even before they were born, there was a choice that took place. That's the clear teaching of the Old Testament on this matter. And then he goes even further in our letter in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in him when? Do you see it? What's the when? Before the foundation of the world. 
That, my brothers and sisters, should rattle you and take us to our fifth point, which is this. Christians were blessed by God before they were born. So the word foundation there, it means uh, just like a foundation of a, of a building, right? It's the beginning. It's the start. God chose us before the start of creation. Now that word is used in lots of places in the New Testament. There's one in uh, the revelation that was given to John that I think is particularly useful. This is Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where Christians are described this way. Listen to these words. Christians are those whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. If you are a Christian, your name was written in God's book before the foundation of the world. So the picture here, the allegory, is that God has a book. And in that book, he wrote down the names of all who would be saved by his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he did that even before he said, let there be light. God chose you, if you are in Christ, God chose you before the foundation of the world. There's no getting around this. This is what all of the Bible teaches. When we say that God chose you, we are talking about the doctrine of election. J.I. Packer defines election this way. I find it a helpful definition. The biblical doctrine of election is that before creation... God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. And that is a remarkable thing. God had you in mind before your conception. which takes me to number six. All blessed Christians can say is, oh, how he loves you, how he loves me. I was thinking about that old chorus this week. <laughs> it's not a bad one. Oh, how he loves you, oh, how he loves me, oh, how he loves you and me. Sometimes the simple ones are good, aren't they? I think the first question everybody asks when they read about this idea of God choosing us, not always the first, often the first is, well, why did he choose me? But right there with it is, why does he choose whomever he chooses? What's the basis of his choosing? It, it kind of feels at first blush like God is unjust. He's doing the choosing? Our minds tend to go immediately to a, to a merit system. God saw this person would be a really good singer, so he chose them. God saw that this woman could write really excellent Christian books, so he chose her. God knew this man would make a great missionary, so he chose him. But nothing could be further from the truth. Merit eliminates choice, doesn't it? 
If there is an ounce of merit in it, God's not choosing, God's not selecting, he's just confirming. And he's responding to earned worth. And I don't think you really want that anyway, because if my contribution, my potential good works in any way influences my name getting written into the book of life, then my bad works and my sins are going to erase that name out of that book of life. Thankfully, wonderfully, God's choice of me doesn't rest on me. As Top Lady wrote, my name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. The word indelible means cannot be erased, cannot be removed. Your name is written in the book of life with a sharpie, bro. (laughs) And there ain't nothing getting it out of there. But that leaves the question, right? Well, why did you choose me? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose us? Turn for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because I think the best answer to this why question, there's, there's several why questions. The best answer to this why question, in my mind, is provided by Moses in the Old Testament. Because in that day, God chose the whole nation of Israel as a whole And he explained to them why they were the object of his choice. Deuteronomy 7 will begin in verse 6. For you are a people holy to Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. Now, in that day, your your merit of your nation was based upon the population of your nation. A great nation is the biggest nation. And here's God looking at Israel and saying to them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you. He's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know what the first answer is to the question, why did God choose me? Why did God choose you? God chose you because he loves you. And he loves you because he loves you. True love, right? True love, by its very nature in being love, can have no other first cause, primary motivator, than love. God says to his people, I chose you because I love you, and I love you because I choose to love you. And that's where it ends in the Bible as far as God's motivations are concerned. That is why John writes in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he, what? First loved us. Why do you love God? Because he first loved you. 
And he loved us and chose us, in the words of Paul in this letter, for the praise of his glorious grace. Grace, free, unmerited benefits and blessings from God. I love you and I choose you so that my grace will be displayed to all the world. Look at what I am. I am the God of grace. To the praise of his glory and grace. One thing that is ultra clear, Old Testament and New Testament, God did not base his choice of you on perceived future worth or contribution to his kingdom. It's not like, you know, as a kid, I don't know, kids, what this is like for you. Like, you're playing ball hockey. Nobody plays ball hockey anymore. You all play basketball, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, when you're picking teams, right? And, and you're like, oh, pick me, pick me. And it's like, no, I'm always like at the bottom. Because what are they doing? They're picking the really good guys first. And then they pick guys like me. And we, and we could think, well, that must be what God is doing. God's looking down in future in his foreknowledge, and he's saying, this person is going to be really amazing, so I'll pick them. And then, and then God kind of, I can just picture the Lord sort of, when you're, when you're thinking that and sort of saying that to him, him smilingly look at, looking at you and saying, hmm, let's read 1 Corinthians together. <laughs> so look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that purpose no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose you, you weak, foolish, low, despised, are not. God chose you, and one of the reasons he chose you and chose me is so we would boast in him. After all, in the words of Ephesians 1, think of what his choosing results in. He chose us in him. We're back in Ephesians 1, verse 4. He chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. Dead sinners, people who are repulsive to God because of their sins, dead sinners are now made holy and blameless. Now those two words, holy and blameless, seem to be Paul's way of catching up the entirety of our salvation. In Jesus Christ, we are made blameless. Our shame is removed. No charges by the devil against you will ever stick. 
All your sins have been paid for, blameless. You were also made holy. Your sinfulness is removed. The perfect obedience of Jesus in his life is now attributed to your account. This, this verse in Ephesians 1 can be misunderstood. Paul is not saying that God chose us so we could try really hard to make ourselves holy and blameless. No, the point of the text is that he chose us to be holy and blameless. Election is unto salvation, and salvation declares a sinner to be holy and blameless in Christ. Think of a prime minister who chooses a fellow MP to become a cabinet minister. That fellow MP becomes minister of finance. That's a choice unto a new reality, a new position, a new title. But in the case of Christians, we are chosen unto holiness, unto blamelessness, and that forever. And unlike the cabinet minister, our term never expires. In fact, I think Paul might have had three timestamps in mind in the way that he wrote this. At the moment of conversion, you were made holy and blameless. Throughout life, you are to continue to grow in holiness and blamelessness in your practice. And at death, when you are translated to glory, you will be made perfectly holy and blameless forever. It was God's will to have a people. Satan did all he could to thwart that plan. And then God did all that was necessary to guarantee it. And this act of God, this act of God began before he even made Satan. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in the sight of, in the presence of God. That thought should bring you great comfort now. God has done everything to look upon you now as if you had never sinned. In Christ, you are holy and blameless right now in his eyes. Therefore, he says, Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear the word no? Well, run to the bank with it. He has done everything for us to be holy and blameless in his sight now by electing you before the foundation of the world. God has guaranteed that you are going to grow in holiness and blamelessness in the days ahead. That's why Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm it. Become more holy, more blameless. And then in the future, by writing your name into the book of life before he created anything, God has ensured that you, brother, that you, sister, you, and you, and you, and you, if you're in Christ, you're going to cross the finish line. Not a him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Yeah, great joy. Made it because of him. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Which is why the Christian response to the doctrine of election is caught in the words of David in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, blessings. The Apostle Paul said it, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in front of him. If you are a Christian, you are one of the elect. And if you're one of the elect, God is going to keep you to the end. God be blessed forever. Are you blessed? Amen. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> With all the spiritual blessings, not the least of which is that the great biblical reality of God's electing grace. There was a time in my life when I wanted none of this. <laughs> it sounded oppressive and non-biblical to my young ears. But after I dealt with the Bible, it became music to my ears. It became wonderful. So I want to stand with Charles Spurgeon, who once wrote this. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterward. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any good reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Therefore, I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine of election. And as you accept it too, your delight in him, our wonderful Savior, is only going to grow as long as your days. And you're going to spend all your days wondering things like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's stand and sing this together. <laughs>